Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Seattle Nice. I'm David Hyde, a politics reporter for KUOW. She's Erica C. Barnett, editor and publisher of Publicola. He's political consultant Sandeep Kajik. And today we're talking about Charlena Lyles. The jury's reached a verdict. And Erica, I'm wondering if you can tell us what the facts are in this case and kind of what's at stake here in Seattle, sort of why we're talking about it. Sure. So Charlena Lyles um, was a pregnant black woman, um, 30 years old. She uh, lived in low income housing. Um, she had a history of mental illness that the police uh, were aware of. She had called uh, police to her apartment before. Um, and on this occasion, um, in 2017, she called police to report a burglary, um, that apparently, um, was not uh, a real burglary, but, um, but, but they, they showed up and she started showing them around her apartment. And then police say her demeanor changed and she pulled out a, um, a small knife. Sounds like, um, it was a paring knife. Uh, from uh, from her jacket. She was wearing a heavy black down jacket in the middle of August. It was sweltering. And um, police, um, instead of trying to uh, de-escalate as they are now required to do, shot her seven times um, inside her apartment um, and killed her almost instantly. Her kids, three of her kids were home at the time. And um, one of her children, a toddler, crawled onto uh, Ms. Lyles's body um, and began crying. Uh, and um, the other, another child uh, who was a preteen came out and saw his mother uh, dead on the floor. And, um, and those are the, the facts of the case. Um, and then uh, since then, you know, it's been a very long journey to this point where an inquest jury, which was charged with looking into the facts and deciding whether there was a crime and whether the two officers that shot Ms. Lyles uh, followed policy and law, um, uh, determined that uh, there was no crime uh, committed and that they did follow the policies in place at the time. And for context, can you, uh, Sandeep, also tell us a little bit about the ways in which uh, Charlene Lyles became a cause here in Seattle? The incident happened five years ago, right? Um, and so, as Erica said, it's been a long journey to this point. I think uh, the issue has become kind of politically supercharged in the wake of the the George Floyd protests and the and the reckoning around um, racism and policing that took place in 2020. But it was obviously a controversial issue well before that happened as well. Look, I think this is a a terrible, terrible tragedy. What happened? It was a situation where a seriously mentally ill person um, who apparently was struggling with with delusions, um, as Erica mentioned, there had been an incident a couple weeks before the the incident that led to the led to the uh, fatality, where she had uh, cops had had come to that apartment and she had said that she was morphing into a wolf and threatened a police officer with some shears. Um, and they were able to defuse that incident without any kind of, um, f- anything further bad happening in the, in that case. But in this case, it sounds like, uh, what turned into what was a normal conversation very rapidly turned into a kind of tense situation that led to, uh, Charlene Lyles pulling a knife and apparently trying to stab or slash these two officers. And within a matter of seconds, you know, they had pulled their weapons. Uh, she actually at one point apparently shouted, do it to the police officers. And then, um, uh, and then they, uh, ended up. As Erica said, uh, shooting her in front of her children. I, I want to provide context to those, to your description of what happened. 
Well, go go ahead. <laughs> you want to you want to yeah, yeah, inject I, I a little just, bias? <laughs> no, not bias. No. I want to I want to no. actually inject some information from yeah. the the court yeah. documents that actually described this incident and the police yeah. reports. I mean, I you know if you if you just read the most recent media reports, um, you know those are the the facts that you described are the ones that the the media has reported. I do think. Um, threatening them with shears is not exactly what happened. Um, the police did res- describe a pair of scissors as, you know, large shears. Um, but uh, it's unclear that she actually threatened them as opposed to pulling out a pair of scissors. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that the further context is it is not clear and the jury um, did not determine that she slashed at anybody. Um, they said that, you know, she sort of pointed the knife or or lunged at uh, at one officer. Again, this is a four inch paring knife, a kitchen knife. Um, and so I think that there really is a question of whether and this is not a question, again, that the inquest jury, you know, was posed. But is it, you know, is it appropriate? And is the um, is the training that says that it's okay to shoot somebody who has, you know, a very small person who, you know, is being faced by two, you know, large six foot plus police officers? Was there any way for them to get that little paring knife away from her without killing her? And I think that that is a legitimate question to be asking, um, you know, in in light of what happened to Charlena Lyles. Um, it does not feel like justice, and it certainly doesn't feel like a proportionate response, just looking at the actual facts of what happened. Um, well, I, again, let me, let me come back here. I mean, like I said, I think this is a tragedy, but uh, this is exactly the, uh, one of the questions that the jury in this inquest case looked at, and they made the determination unanimously Uh that you know uh uh that the um uh that the police response was not uh, uh the the response of the two officers there was not a line i i hear this a lot from the left that she was a really small woman and you know and the knife wasn't that big but i mean this is a incident that happened in a matter of seconds one of the police officers testified that she did in fact slash at him and he had to jump backwards they were in a confined space in her kitchen um, and you know, I mean, uh, you the, know, door Erica, was, the door was the door behind them was open. Um, they, well, well, they, well, but, but one one of the officers was sort of backed up against the wall. The other one thought he was against the wall, but 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 obviously the testimony in the inquest showed that that he he was able to back I, out. I, I think it's interesting, I, Sandeep, that you're taking testimony of police officers at absolute face value. Um, I mean, I, I just I, think that's a choice to say uh, that well, you know that the I, activists quote unquote are you know are are inaccurately describing her as small and inaccurately describing the knife I'm, as small. I don't I'm not saying that it's inaccurate to say that she's small I'm saying when a person you're well, smaller you are than saying me, that police don't but mind. you're smaller than me but if you were in front of me a few feet away and you had a knife and were and were swinging at me I think I would probably like you know not be in a position to be like, oh yeah, it would be a simple act of I'm able to disarm Erica Barnett of this. You knife can back. That she- I mean, Sunny. <laughs> you know, so I, so, I, I, so anyway, I, I just I, think it's a choice to assume that it's it's impossible for officers to lie or mislead, and I think it's a choice to say that there was no way they could have de-escalated because, in fact, 
I mean, de-escalation happens all over the world with people with knives. Uh, the, the SPD is looking at their policy right now to improve the way that they respond to people with knives, acknowledging the fact that, you know, that, that they are not always responding in an appropriate way and with appropriate force, that there are options for de-escalation. And so to take police at face value, again, the inquest did not, you know, decide whether this was fair or not. That was not their charge. But to take police at absolute face value, no matter what they say, and say that it was impossible for this to have gone any other way just is absurd to me because there are examples from all over the world where we don't have cops, you know, shooting uh, a, a person seven times and instantly killing them because they brandish a knife. I, I mean, think this, is was, not, that, this is not an impossibility. Look, I think there was other evidence in this case, aside from the testimony of the officers themselves, that that um that seemed to largely corroborate their account of what happened and again we had a we had a jury of of uh six people in King County who uh who listened to and weighed all of that evidence and answered those questions and by the way I, we should point out that the inquest process itself in this case was delayed you know for quite a long time because uh the King County executives and others felt that the inquest process, as it was previously constituted, was was too tilted in favor of of police. And so those procedures were actually re- revised. Uh, new procedures put forward, I think, last year in 2021. That obviously delayed this happening. But even under these new procedures, the jury was unanimous in, in its finding. Look, I, so I, I don't know. Well, they you know, weren't unanimous I mean, I mean, in, in every finding. True. It seems like one of the big issues here is that that it turned on was that they recognize that this officer, Steve uh, McNew, should have been carrying his taser. In fact, the jury found that he hadn't followed SPD's taser policy and then ends up shooting her instead of tasing her. And that's the part that I'm a little bit confused about in terms of this verdict. I mean, if you're an officer and you you use your gun, you shoot somebody, you forgot your... Sorry, man, I forgot my taser. How does that work that you that that you were justified in using deadly force when you should have been carrying your taser and you weren't? Well, what they what they found was that um, was that he was in violation of that policy, but that um, it would not have been sufficient that having a taser would not have been sufficient to um, to uh, prevent, I guess, the the threat of bodily harm. So he was suspended for two days for that violation. Yeah, I get that. But how do six jurors know that? How do they know that? Well, they're basing How it do on. They the, know that this would have worked. They, I mean, they don't know. They're basing it that, that, again. Their 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 charge was not sort of. Um, understanding how how tasers work on the body, although that that evidence was introduced, their charge was was you know determining the truth or falsity of of these interrogatories. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that I think they're right, but uh, but that is you know that's what they determined. I don't know how they know, um, and I you know beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but but that's that was their determination, and he and he was suspended for two days for not um, not having the taser, but. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's it's hard to say why they think that why they thought that that was not um, sufficient. I, I mean, it's possible, you know. I'm just thinking back to some of the testimony um, that one of the issues was the the small quarters that you know a taser wouldn't have been effective um, at at that distance. There was a lot of testimony about how tasers work, um, but I don't know ex- the exact reason that they chose for that uh, that determination. I wasn't following it either, but didn't his didn't his partner say? 
suggests that he used the taser. Shouted for the taser. Now, it's, it's important to note the officer was disciplined for the failure to bring a, 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 a taser to that that incident, uh, you know, it's kind of internal SVD discipline. Look, I... So so two days is, is good? Like, sorry, you forgot your taser. You're, you're again, the family David, of Bernie Lyles. David, you may two days have an opinion discipline. about this, but the inquest jury looked at this no, very I don't. question I'm just extensively and came to a conclusion. And again, the point here being, you can, you and Eric can substitute your judgments for You know, you have every right to do that, but... Sonny, but nobody's substituting is, their judgments. I mean, <laughs> well, let me let me finish my point. Like we're allowed can, to have opinions about this. Yes, shooting. you're allowed to have opinions. I, I agree. I'm, I'm not. I'm just asking a question. <laughs> well, Sonny, if you yeah. clearly have you're, an opinion you're about the a very shooting, pointed question that goes in one, one direction. But what, the larger point here, I think, is that often these are incredibly complex, intense, you know, situations that happen over a matter of seconds, right? Not minutes, but but seconds and that there's i think a desire to sort of um from a lot of people to kind of shoehorn those situations into sort of preordained narratives based on our kind of ideological belief systems right i think that and, this and, is i think that this is actually a situation that has been um described you know in uh, an unbelievable amount of detail over many over the five years. I mean, I think people who have views about this case are familiar with the facts of the case because the facts of the case have, have been, you know, adjudicated in the media. You know, you don't even have to go to the court docu- documents. You can just read the, the coverage of this over the years. So it's not it's not shoehorning a situation in. It's looking at the facts and saying, could there have been a de-escalation here. You're saying no, that it's impossible. And I'm saying it seems like there could have been. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm, I, you know, um, maybe there could have been, but again, this was something that a jury looked at in an intensive inquest process. The jury didn't ask whether de-escalation was possible. I think it's really important to remember that although the inquest process was amended and reformed so that families can participate, they can have an attorney present, um, you know, there, there were some other changes that were made. Um, the inquest is not looking at the questions that you were describing, Sandeep. And so to say, well, a jury found, a jury found, this is not a criminal proceeding. This is a fact-finding proceeding. And it's not a proceeding that looks into whether, you know, that looks into possible de-escalation alternatives that could have been used. They answered 120 some, some odd questions. And, you know, could there have been some other form of de-escalation um, hypothetically, it was not among those questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I thought it was. I thought the King County prosecutor Dan Satterberg's response was interesting um, in that he there's still you know additional steps here where in theory at least the King County prosecutor could bring charges against these two officers. As you say, this was not a a criminal proceeding; it was an inquest, and so uh, and he kind of. Um, he sort of danced around that, I thought, in his statement, right? He kind of, he talked about it as a tragedy and said he was going to, he had had a senior um, King County prosecutor in the inquest proceedings and observing the whole thing and that they would now make a determination uh, whether or not to bring any charges in this case or not. So I think that's the next next thing to look at here. I find it hard to believe after this inquest that they would come down differently and bring charges, but we'll see. I think it's very interesting, going back to your first question, David, I think framing this around the protests in 2020, um, that 
George Floyd has kind of become, um, I, you know, it's it's the name George Floyd has been used by a lot of politicians around the country, but but you know, I'll just stick to locally as an example of you know horrific police violence and um, and a murder by police somewhere else where they do murders against people. Um, the implication being that George Floyd was uniquely horrific and Minneapolis, you know, there, there's something wrong up there. But here in Seattle, we don't murder people. Here in Seattle, the police are not capable of murder. Um, so it's it's kind of, you know, unfortunately, um, especially, you know, under the Durkin administration and, and, and also under this administration, the Harrell administration, you know, it has been uh, almost a distraction to be able to say the murder of George Floyd and use that phrase. But, you know, in, in a way, it exonerates the city and city officials from looking at police killings here and considering are those murders too? And I, I just, um, I hate that the that the George Floyd killing, uh, that the killing of George Floyd is used in that way, because I do think it is a way of uh, sort of a, elected officials being able to, you know, very subtly um, exonerate themselves and say we're not like that here, we don't murder people here, and just kind of close the question in that way. Bruce Harrell himself, Erica, agrees with you though. Uh, saying he continues to believe we're asking the wrong questions, not whether the use of lethal force was justified, but whether it was necessary. This is Bruce Harrell. Could we have ensured officer safety and saved a life? So it sounds like Bruce Harrell's asking Erica's exact question. And I don't disagree with that either. And let me just be really clear here, because I don't disagree with that either. If there are reforms that come out of this that in future make it less likely that this sort of tragedy would would take place and that these situations could be diffused without violence, that's great. I hope they should be looking at that. And that is an important thing for them to to take into account. I mean, I, to, to Erica's last point, though, I mean, I'm not quite sure. Like, if, if you're saying that there's a lot of performative bullshit in our local politics, I'm hard-pressed to disagree with that. I mean, that happens, you know, Lord, I'm rolling my eyes half the time I, you know, listen to elected officials sort of, sort of, sort of pontificate about this or that. I mean, that's certainly true, but I don't think that George Floyd has become some kind of shield for local officials to not consider the implications of uh, incidents that happen locally involving police. Uh, uh, but do you see the language you're action? using and Bruce Harrell is using incidents and events, a, tra- a tragedy. I mean, even, you know, I mean, Ann Davison said it was it was tragic, I think. Actually, no, she didn't. She just said that she hopes there's some closure. But I mean, it's language. Language means things. And, you know, calling something a murder means something different than, you know, an inevitable tragedy. And I don't think this is I think a lot of people I think the jury ultimately didn't think this was the same. This was a murder in the way that I think most people, myself and you and, you know, uh, think that what happened to George Floyd really was, you know, a, a, a murder. I don't know that these two situations are really uh, the same. I'm not um, saying that they are the same. What I'm saying is that I or think that they that, fit into the same category. I think that we are in a, you know, a defensive crouch. And as our as our other cities who, you know, say, thank God, we're not Minneapolis. And, you know, and they and they, uh, you know, exonerate themselves or just sort of close off that line of inquiry by saying George Floyd was a murder. This is a tragic incident. And everything that happens in our city, every time somebody is killed by police, it is a tragic event that, you know, could not uh, have been uh, have been avoided given the specific circumstances in this case, case closed. And and 
And and I, I just to respond, David, to to the Bruce Harrell thing, I, I do think that um, there's a there's a difference in his statement and what I'm saying. His statement said that um, you know we are asking the wrong questions um, and we need to look at whether lethal force is necessary. I think that's a really important statement. However, he went on to say that more reforms in training would fix the problem, and I think that the point that um, that advocates have been making is that reform has been in place for many, many years now. And we've been doing quote unquote reforms and more and more trainings, um, including de-escalation training. And um, it hasn't actually resulted in in fewer police killings. Uh, So defund, defund, we must defund the cops. Well, (laughs) I mean, saying like, oh, we need to we need to reform and get and like, let's put them through more trainings. Yes, Um, yes, more training is probably a good idea and we do need is to not result is not producing the result that i think you and and harold and uh durkin before him um, i don't claim I, and carmen I, best etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't think that there's any scenario that's realistic where sometimes you know use of force by police officers ending in tragic results happens um uh you know there are uh, in the you know thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of encounters that that happen between uh, police and citizens, I think there are probably going to be times when um, uh, uh, sad, uh, uh, sad you know sad things happen. Sometimes there are going to be times when when police really act uh, in completely illegal, inappropriate, and um, uh, and, and actionable ways, and they should be held to account when that happens. I think at other times there are, you know, tragic encounters, but that don't rise to the level of some kind of criminal wrongdoing or murder, as if you want to use your term. And it looks to me, I wasn't on the inquest jury, but it looks to me like the jury thought that this was 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 not in that, you know, in that George Floyd category. So, I would also say this raises the question, right? I mean, I was thinking about this situation. What if we had sent an unarmed social worker to go to that? Well, she was calling. She was calling for burglary. So there's almost no scenario in which anybody is advocating for a social worker to respond to a burglary call. How about a co-responder model, though, Sandeep? What if there had been a social worker there? I'm 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 all for a co-responder model. I think I you know to the extent that we're doing it now, I think it, it, it it it's a it's a it's a good approach and works well. And I think a lot of look. I'm on the DESC board. DESC embed social workers with SPD for certain kinds of calls already. And that model, I think, works well, where it's sort of, uh, you know, in those sort of crisis situations in the lead, but there's an officer on hand in case anything goes sideways, right? I think that model does make a lot of sense. Now, it costs a lot more. That's not defunding. That is, that is, you know, that's reform, right? That is reform. We need more reform like that, right? Uh, I'm all for it. Um, but uh, I think we need a lot more uh, investment in crisis intervention. Um, we have the mobile crisis teams in in Seattle and King County, but there, I think there there uh, there's not enough uh, resources there. There 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 are some big investments being made. Um, the county just put out a big, uh, actually DSC is is going to be doing this, but about uh, crisis interventions at a uh, permanent supportive housing sites. It's a big. Uh, 
a, a big new initiative and effort that DSC is going to be running. So I do think there are there's some attention being paid to those sorts of things, and 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 as well there should be. Uh, so Sandeep, uh, you've heard some gossip this week. Uh, I just want to end with a with that as a kicker. Um, we could be transforming the way that we elect folks here in Seattle, maybe in other parts of Washington State too, but there might be two proposals in Seattle. Yeah, well, just the context here is that uh, there's been an effort um, led by uh, some local folks um, to put an approval voting measure on the ballot. And what approval voting is, is that it, it allows in in multi-candidate primaries in the city of Seattle, every voter would be allowed to choose and vote for as many or as few candidates as they wanted. So if there's four candidates in a 10-candidate field that you like in the primary, you would have the ability to vote for all four of the candidates that you like. And then the top two vote-getters would then go on to a kind of normal general election. Um, and they've made various arguments for why this is a much better system. Uh, we've talked about this months ago on the podcast. Uh, I I think Eric and I both agreed in the past that this was sort of a a, a solution looking for a problem. I'd still think that. Um, I think our current election system in Seattle works fine. Uh, but it's generated a huge amount of, well, not a huge amount, but but some vocal pushback on the left and in the activist community uh, who are prefer uh, a different model of ranked choice voting where voters have to, you know, have to rank the candidates in order of preference on the ballot and there's a system that then weed out candidates until there's only one left. Um, what I am hearing this week is that next week we are – so so the approval voting folks went out. They collected signatures. Uh, they turned them in. It's going to the ballot. What happens then, it goes to the city council and then the city council can either move it along to the ballot, they can adopt it into the law themselves, or – the third option is that they can put it on the ballot along with an alternative. And so I think what we're hearing now is that there's a big push and likely to be an effort at the council next week to put a ranked choice voting alternative on the ballot alongside approval voting uh, at the behest of these activists. So sort of, as I understand it, it would pit them against each other on the ballot. Um, so cool. Um, Maybe both will fail. I mean, I, I like, wish I'd, I'd be ha- I'd be fine with that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, remember when we did he- hell no and hell no on the yeah. on the two tele- right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were Just, you were news editor at the Stranger then, weren't you? I was I, indeed, or I was maybe doing, I might have been a reporter. I can't remember, but I, and I was doing the 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 campaign, and I remember, yeah. I did you come up with no and hell no? Was that your formulation? Anyway, wow, you guys I don't stuck remember, it on the but cover. I'll take credit. <laughs> yeah, you stuck it on the cover of the Stranger. It was super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so ranked choice. Nobody else remembers this. Nobody else has any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, that makes me so sad. Yeah. Anyway, we were colluding in the past. Do you want to explain it? I don't we care if you do. We were colluding against uh, against what was it? The tunnel and the. There were two. The... Advi- it was February of 2007. There were so it's ancient history now, but there were two advisory votes that were put on this special election ballot in the city of Seattle about what to do with the Alaskan Way viaduct. And one of the advisory votes was on, should we build a tunnel 
Uh, and the other one was, should we rebuild the viaduct? Yeah, these um, are yeah be- two stupid ideas, and and I and I'm not going to say that I think that um, rank choice voting and uh, approval voting are are stupid, equally stupid, anything like that. But I do think. <laughs> but which one is the tunnel? Approval voting is the tunnel because it's the yes. one that's supported by the kind of mainstream folks who want the centrist candidate to win. I mean, the the rebuild the viaduct was such a wackadoo idea. I don't know that there's an, an analogous well. uh, proposal, but but what we advocated um, at the time was to do nothing. Um, and just not rebuild the viaduct, not build a tunnel and just keep keep it as it is. And, you know, and I think that the, the analogy is, you know, both of these are sort of technocratic solutions. I mean, as Sandeep put it, um, you know, in search of a problem, um, we uh, we don't know the exact there's no way to predict the exact impact of these new voting systems on human behavior um, in Seattle. You know, a, a city that has a particular system primaries in August that are very, you know, poorly uh, you know, poorly attended primaries and, uh, you know, have a very different electorate, electorate than the general election, um, you know, sort of throwing something at the wall and saying this is going to result in a more progressive result or this is going to result in a more centrist result. Um, you know, it's it's really tricky when you're talking about human behavior. And, uh, you know, and I, and I also think it's going to be to, to, to steal a point David was making before we started recording. It's going to be uh, very confusing to people if we have results where the person who got the most votes doesn't win. And I think, especially I think at a time it, yeah. where uh, democracy uh, no, is No, that was just a question. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's just a question. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to, sorry, yeah. I don't mean to give you, uh, to put an opinion in your mouth, but but I but uh, I, I personally think that that will be I think confusing. I think that's right. All of these systems open new avenues for weird sort of gamesmanship around elections and for uh, layers of complexity that could lead to results that you, that, yeah, that, 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 that do, uh, delegitimize the, 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 the system in the eyes of, of the public. Let me give you a really quick example about ranked choice in, in New York, which has ranked choice voting. Eric Adams won, you know, the, the mayor of New York won the, the initial vote comfortably. He was, you know, I don't know, eight points ahead of, um, of the second place finisher in the primary. And then after you, after two weeks of these kind of arcane rank choice calculations, they came out and he ended up barely winning. And remember, he was African American candidate and the candidate of kind of black and brown people in outer boroughs, sort of lower income black and brown people in the outer boroughs of New York. And the candidate that almost because of this rank choice process rose up to, to beat him, it was the candidate of kind of, you know, uh, white progressive elites in Manhattan. Right. And um, and I think that and Eric Adams, his people seem they were all teed up to kind of attack the legitimacy of the whole process in the election if that that ranked choice had overturned the election. So, you know, and and I don't really blame him for that. Right. I mean, he uh, said anyway, it didn't happen. But but I think that's a cautionary tale for us. Look, I I think the, the reality here is. I think the ranked choice people that are pushing this really think I, – I agree with you, Erica. I think it's hard to predict what actually happens. But the reason they're doing it is they believe that this will – ranked choice will elect leftier candidates. They can't win under the ordinary system. So let's rig the system a little more in our direction so that our candidates win. I mean I, I think the motive – And same thing with the approval voting. Let's rig dubious. the system. 
It's interesting that you refer to the people that support the idea that they think will result in pro- more progressive candidates as activists, but the approval voting people, I guess because they have the money to hire paid signature gatherers, are not activists? They're not, they're, 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 <laughs> I see them more as tech bros than activists. They're kind of like uh, – look, I, I, I know Logan Bowers, who's one of the leaders of this campaign. I was talking to him the other day, and I told him this – you know, I'll say it again, but I think they're they're kind of they have a little bit of the smartest guy in the room syndrome of these sort of sort of tech guys. Like, oh, we invented this elegant solution to solve a problem that we actually didn't realize doesn't exist, you know, and and and, uh, and now it's ter- going to turn into this big likely going to turn into this big mess and food fight on the ballot between rank choice and approval voting and. You know, God knows what's going to come out the other end of this, right? Like, and and all, and and why exactly? Like, like what the? Pardon my French, but what the fuck is wrong with our current system? Like, it seems to work fine. I don't see any problems with electing people of color or women in the city of Seattle. I think we do that routinely. We have well, we've had we've had (laughs) two women mayors in the history of Seattle, so I do I do think that there are problems, and we don't have any black representatives on the city council right now. We definitely have problems, but I don't know that it's going Um, to be addressed by you know reshuffling the election system. You know, and, and trying to, you know, as you put it, Sandeep, you know, introduce gamesmanship into it. I, I, you know, I agree with you on that. Yeah. All right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll have to leave it there. That's another edition of Seattle Nice successfully recorded. He's Sandeep Kashik. She's Erica Barnett. I'm David Hyde. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to contact us, you can direct message us or tweet at us. Our uh, Twitter account is at Real Seattle Nice at Twitter. You can also donate. Please, please, please consider donating whatever you can afford at Patreon, Seattle Nice at Patreon. And again, thanks everybody so much for listening. <laughs>